1: Hi, this is Cammie. Esther Choi joins us this week on Money Tales. Esther recently published a white paper on first-generation wealth creators. The New York Times featured her report focusing on the philanthropic aspects of her research. Most wealthy people today created the wealth over their lifetime. This is a major transition for those individuals who often keep the values they were raised with. Esther wanted to understand how the modest upbringings of wealth creators influence them today and how that plays out in their philanthropic giving. She uncovers that encouraging wealth creators to tell their own stories is the key to unlocking their purpose and values, revealing the causes they want to support. Let me tell you a little more about Esther. She is the president and chief story facilitator at Leadership Story Lab, where she applies design thinking and science to help her clients articulate and assert who they are, ultimately connecting with audiences in meaningful ways. Since 2010, Esther has combined the science of persuasion and the art of storytelling to help her clients gain a competitive edge.
2: Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Esther hits on in this conversation. First, how money is the dirtiest thing we cannot live without. Second, storytelling techniques that involve IRS. Intriguing beginnings, riveting middles, and satisfying ends. And third, why it's important to know your story. Instead of focusing on the facts, tell about the challenges you faced. As Esther says, challenge is the nerve center of a story and change is its soul. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now. On to our conversation with Esther Choi.
1: Hello, Money Tales listeners. We're here for another great money conversation with our guest today. Sandy, how did you meet Esther Choi?
2: I had the pleasure of meeting Esther at a summit that our friend and former podcast guest, Barbara Pierce, had for her Women with Capital community earlier in the year it was a great day. We were in the Petaluma area, the Bay Area, and Esther led a workshop to start off the summit on storytelling, and it was fantastic. We had a chance to connect at the end of the summit later in the afternoon, and I immediately knew that it would be fun to have Esther on Money Tales so
1: I'm so delighted to be in this conversation today. Thanks, Sandy, and I'm reading her book, Let the Story Do the Work. It's fantastic. All right, so let's move on. Let's make this introduction. Welcome, Esther Choi, to the Money Tales podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Esther. (laughs) Hi. (laughs) So, we know a little bit about you, but would you introduce yourself and, in doing so, provide a couple pivotal moments that really impacted you?
3: I have been teaching storytelling since 2010, before it was a thing. And even though people knew intuitively stories are great, but how do you use that in a business setting? Since then, I have been working with senior executives, public and as well as privately owned companies on using classical elements of storytellings in the modern world. Effectively, we're trying to help executives become
1: more persuasive and influential using the classical tools of story. When did you fall in love with this storytelling format framework?
3: I've always loved it, but it seemed like it was more of a hobby. And then until 2004, I worked at the University of Chicago School of Business as an admission officer, where in elite business schools, competitive admissions, anytime where there are more demand than there are supplies. And this is not a matter of adjusting prices that can set us in an equilibrium. And how do you decide of all those who are more than qualified, who gets in? A lot of it have to do with the way that you Leverage facts, informations about your life and tell compelling stories through gatekeepers, decision makers about a future that no one is yet at. Wow, so people have to use their imagination, and that is the number one part of our power that everybody has number one thing that. Most adults are underutilizing.
1: We always like to start just to get a little foundation on you, hearing your backstory. What was money like as you were growing up in your home?
3: Probably typical of a lot of people.
1: I like to say
3: that money is the dirtiest thing that we can't live without. <laughs> Ooh, that's evocative. Storyteller. And it was literally dirty. That's what my mom told me that anytime I touch money, I handle money, I got my pocket money, I went to the market to buy something, it's all cash-based. Anytime I touch money, I have to make sure I wash my hands because who knows where these currency had been, all these coins had been. And so... She just really wanted me to make sure that we have clean hands around the house, and which is probably a really good thing. But from the literal to the allegorical, I don't think there's a lot of difference either because of a lack of deliberate financial education, financial literacy. And you just kind of watch how adults behave around money. Then you know that money is trouble, but you need it to. So I'm
2: so glad you're talking about both contexts of your statement because I can definitely relate to the washing of hands. I say the same thing to my children, <laughs> although it seems like they're not touching money as much as I used to when I was their age. So that's been pretty fascinating. But for this more allegorical perspective around money, is that how you feel about it
3: today? Luckily, no, but I've done a lot of homework and self-reflections and working with other people and book readings and researching and a whole lot of things to change my point of view about money, as well as relationship with money, as well as that instinctual gut reaction about money.
1: Tell us a little bit about what you did to change this perspective.
3: Oh, I would say not until we had more than enough, because my parents had always struggled, my in-laws the same way. They sort of worked their way up to solid middle class. And I would say we're more comfortable than most of our peers. That was really the first time I thought, well, when you're in the comfortable positions, then wouldn't it be so logical that then you become comfortable? Actually, no. Because once our situations were better than that of our peers, then I was very self-conscious. And then eventually, when my husband and I got to a point where we also didn't have to worry the lack of money, then it became an embarrassment and becomes shameful. I wouldn't even talk to my mom or my husband wouldn't talk to his mom about where we're at. The other day, I was talking to my mom. I can talk about it now because I know she'll never find this podcast. <laughs> so you guys are hearing things that my mom doesn't know. But my mom asked me, she lives in Hong Kong. She has us. So inflation really bad here and in the States, right? I said, yeah. Are you guys okay? Are you struggling? How's life have been? And I said, thank you, mom we're okay. We've never had to worry at all about rising cost of the basic goods. We're so fortunate. And it's this very thing that when you didn't have to worry, then it instantly turned into shame and embarrassment. And so the work that I've done was anytime you experience discomfort, instead of trying to sweep it under the rug, instead of trying to avoid it, instead of trying to medicate it somehow, it's really worthwhile to stay with it. The same goes with pain. The same goes with any other quote-unquote negative feelings. Because then I realize that there are a lot of people, other people just like me, Both in terms of the not having to worry about it, in terms of this quantity, but also in terms of feeling bad about having so much. And once I realize that, oh, I'm not the only one. Okay, that's the first sign of this is not the end of the world. And then the other thing is think about then why, why should it cause embarrassment and shame when the implicit goal I have always been told is to make sure you're financially secured. So I was financially secured. Why not the ease of worry and jubilation?
2: I love what you're saying. And I thank you for sharing this. What you just shared has a lot to do with the power of money tales and why Cammie and I, with the support of Asperian, are really trying to bring to life money stories, because when we share these stories with each other, we can learn one another and we can open up whatever feelings we have about money, whether it's shame and guilt or something boastful or whatever the emotion is. I'm curious, Esther, as a storyteller, it sounds like you were
3: changing your story around money. Yes, I have. And like a lot of good things that is discovered accidentally. I was teaching this major gift solicitation strategy program, an executive education program at Cal School of Management. It's a great program. I taught the storytelling part, and then I had two other faculties who taught the fundraising component. And this is focusing on major gifts, then it's focusing on those who have ability to make major gifts. And there is where a lot of discoveries were made that led to me changing my story about money.
2: Tell us about that. And I want to mention for our listeners, and we'll get into this some more, you recently published a white paper based on some research that you did entitled Transforming Partnerships with Major Donors. And so it'd be great to hear how it shifted you.
3: Even though I was not in fundraising, but in fundraising, I think everybody understands the story is very important. And so I was brought in to teach that part. And I also did not share. I didn't think to share. I also didn't think I should share that I was a major donor myself. To make the long story short, the things that I discovered that was really interesting was I assigned prep work, most faculty Do. And what I assigned, I thought was fairly simple, and maybe they have already done that already. And which is one of them is to ask two to three of the major supporters, longest supporters, questions such as what got you started supporting our organizations? Why are you still here? What kept you here? What surprised you? Things that I thought were fairly basic questions. And insightful. The organization could hear a lot of useful information. Exactly. And that they can say, oh, this professor at made me do this. Would you please help me? <laughs> and what I was surprised by wasn't so much of what they discovered, but it's the fact that they thank me for making them do it.
1: Interesting. What do you think kept them from doing? Asking some pretty natural questions.
3: I think the very origin of having the ability to tell good stories is being curious, curious about all sorts of things, and being curious and respectful to go after what you're curious about. And so, what I was curious about was so, if you didn't take this course, if you didn't have me, when would you actually sit these people down and ask them these questions? Then, the more I Looked into it, the more I realized that there's, I guess, a professional habits of learning your craft from more senior fundraisers, learning from consultants who were former fundraisers, but not directly from the people you are trying to influence and persuade and get them to make gifts.
2: So it's very one-sided and a lot of assumptions I'm imagining that they were
3: making so much assumptions. And I've read books like how wealthy people were perceived by society, both in terms of from personal experience as well as fairly in-depth research and cross countries as well. So US, UK, Germany, and France. Those are the things that I began to wonder, wait a second, maybe there's good reason for me to feel embarrassed and shameful about having money having wealth because people who need to understand people with wealth don't really go about it directly and in my opinion effectively and then generally our society have very negative perceptions about people with means and so i think i was taught well to keep it a secret keep it guarded, and then, oh, wow! Well, if you feel shame and embarrassment, too bad. And so I went about an embarking on a study that led me to this paper, Transforming Partnership with Major Donors, and discovered that, yes, not only were there a lot of people like me, majority of high net worth, ultra high net worth people, at least in this country, we're talking about upward of 70% are first-generation wealth creators, and that's my first discovery. So these are people who are solid middle and sometimes even lower socioeconomic class that have made their way up to high net worth individuals.
2: That's a very big transition.
3: In one generation, yes. I've interviewed 20 folks who fall under that category. None of them made it In one or two selling adventures. It's over a lifetime, but still it's over one person's lifetime, one generation's. And so what follows then is that the fact that a lot of them maintain their middle class values and identity, and they are staunchly proud of it. And maybe because of it, they don't talk about it. So you've made this shift, and yet, with your financial wherewithal. So the outside, it's different. By outside, I don't mean houses, materials, cars, and things like that. But on the inside, nothing's changed. And so when you look at a lot of how they view fundraising or how they were pitched, how they're approached or how they're cultivated, there are these stages of cultivating donors as well as big splashy gailers. this was done before COVID, a lot of it just doesn't agree with folks who are very wealthy, very successful, because they're successful, because they didn't inherit money, but they have solid middle-class values. A big disconnect. There is a big disconnect. And so I can't say I have all the solutions to the world because I don't. But the fact of the matter is that If you want to tell a good story, you got to first understand who your audience is, who the people are.
1: That and also what I love you're touching on, it's something Sandy brings up often, the two sides of money. There's the technical side and then there's the emotional side. And... There's a lot of emphasis, what I'm hearing on the technical side, even as these people are being trained, they're being trained by the previous fundraiser and how to and the technical skills and what you're really hitting on through these questions is the emotional side.
3: They are trained on the emotional side, but you can't tune into the emotional side if you don't know what the instruments are.
2: Yeah, that's right. If you're working off of assumptions as opposed to who is this individual or this couple, what is their purpose? What are their values? What matters
3: most to them? And how can the organization connect to those things? I am glad you brought those questions of what are your motivations and purpose and who your values. I can't stand those questions. <laughs> I'm <No>. sorry. <laughs> oh, say more. This is fascinating. I love this. I can't stand those questions because after years and years and years of working with folks on finding their stories they usually stare at me with blank stares or they recycle what they've heard from others from elsewhere so you hear a lot of the same these are to me very top down questions What's your purpose in life? What are your values? And things like that. Very few people actually have thought about it enough and searched for the words hard enough to come up with the most accurate and eloquent answers. That's why when I ask, in my context, is What is your leadership story? But if you ask them, what are your biggest leadership moments, they'll come up with something that sounds usually rather trite and full of cliches because they're recycling what they have heard from elsewhere. So in the same case with trying to get to somebody's values and purpose and motivations in lives, I often find that these top-down questions don't work that well. You get something but it's really superficial. It's
2: not that you disagree that understanding what the, in this case, prospective donors, values, purpose, and mission is, you're saying there's a different way to get there than asking flat out blank. Correct. I would completely agree with you on that. Those are
3: important. I'm glad you're clarifying too, because then I could Leave completely the wrong impressions, and there it goes that storyteller
2: <laughs> This is wonderful. And I'll give you an example. So if we're in a conversation with a client about what's most important to them and what their values are, we'll often ask them to tell us stories about their family, what really makes their family their family. What is the ethos of the family? Tell us some stories to explain that. And from their responses, we're able to hone into what is most important to them. What are the values of this family? And then we'll repeat back to them what we heard from the stories and check in.
3: I agree with that. And it's having those eventual goals in mind, the understanding clients or potential donors, value system, family system, all that important, but I said I can't stand those questions because oftentimes I found people lead with that and that doesn't get anywhere meaningful and actually substantive. I like asking questions like, what was one path you didn't embark on and why not? I like asking questions like, what do you typically do on a Saturday morning or what was something that you believed in for a long time and later on discovered that you were wrong or at least have changed your mind?
2: Those are great questions. You really get to the humanity of the person that you're speaking to.
3: It's what people didn't choose or decided not to that tells me a lot more about who they are and what's important to them than what they ended up doing and choosing.
1: And through those questions, Esther, are you helping them create their own stories so they get to the essence of it?
3: So I want to make the distinctions between knowing the facts of your life versus telling your life stories. Most people do the first, such as, tell me about yourself. And you get an abbreviated verbal version of people's Mm -hmm. resume chronological, where they grew up, which school they went to, what they did for a living, so on and so forth. They know the facts in their life, but that's not a story because a story has an intriguing beginning, a riveting middle, and a satisfying end. I always tell clients, please, please, please have a different relationship with the acronym IRS.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's
3: not internal revenue services. It's intriguing beginning, riveting middle, and a satisfying end. And that's the structure of a story. But in the story itself, where there must be some sort of challenge and change. Because challenge is the nerve center of a story and change is the soul of it. So by giving me a bunch of information about your life... I now know a little bit about you, but I don't know what it all means. So the story structurally have the IRS imprint on it and have challenge and change, but it also creates meaning. So
2: Esther, if we take all these great storytelling insights and these wonderful questions that you've shared with us, and we turn it to the results of the paper and the research that you did, I'm curious, what can our listeners who may be philanthropists themselves, take away and how can they use what you've learned to be more effective at making their major gifts?
1: I
3: think it's very worthwhile to know your story first because I'm not sure if they should or could count on anyone else to help them find it. So the number one thing is that know your story. And again, not just knowing the facts of your life, know your story. And from there, I'd encourage them to tell it directly to those who are asking them for major gifts. Because one should not underestimate that it can be very intimidating for them to ask you these questions that actually get to your stories. They'll hopefully know to ask for your story, but then the questions they tend to ask often don't get to it. I would encourage listeners to be more proactive and providing guidance to those who are soliciting gifts and nudging them to really understand who you are. Instead of worrying about not offending you or not asking the wrong questions or not squandering the chance to land a gift,
2: this is so important because I think also knowing your story as it relates to the philanthropic work that you want to do helps you weed out organizations that aren't aligned with what's most important to you. And you have a nice way to part with them and focus on the organizations that you really want to be supporting. I
3: think at the end of the day, save everybody's time, which to me, even more so than money, is the most valuable resource that we all have. It's time.
2: This conversation is making me think of a client conversation I was in a few years back. We were working with a couple. They just had huge liquidity event they sold a business that they had both started together and one of the goals that they shared with us when we were really getting to know them was that they wanted to become philanthropists and i'd never heard clients express it quite like that and it was fun and exciting because it does take time to understand what is being a philanthropist mean to you why is it important to you And again, I'm shortcutting some of the questions here, but we've had a lot of conversation over the years about all of these things and have really helped them focus on what it is that they want to do with the resources they have and what organizations they'd like to support. I bring this up because it is a very proactive process, they're not waiting for organizations to come to them. We've helped them focus on what they're trying to achieve and help them identify the partners that they wanna work with to achieve it. And not only just use their financial resources, but to use their time, their skills, the relationships that they have. So it really is a very comprehensive,
3: proactive process. And I appreciate you bringing this up. It's an intimate process getting to know someone's stories. So it's totally understandable why most people would have at least some intimidations going about it. That's why I encourage my former students to start with your most ardent supporters. Because they're already there. They're your fan. So go to your fan, but really drill deep into the DNA of why They have been supporting you because then and only then can you replicate or attempt to replicate the, I love these people. We don't have enough of these people. How do we attract more of these people? Oh, wow. These are their stories. How can we tell them in ways that we attract other future donors who have the same passion DNA who will draw
2: them to us? Esther, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with?
3: It's going to be with my daughter's friend who is very gifted academically and all sorts of ways. And she offers to tutor my daughter on math. And she's done it for a number of years and tutor grades above her. Just offers to do it, no money. And that's how she's always been doing grades and grades above herself. But I thought, this would be such an important lesson and start for her to have a different relationship with money and different money conversation. I ask her, I want you to charge me, but you need to tell me how much. And you need to go do your homework and then come back and we'll talk. We'll negotiate. And her mom and I went back and forth. She's all for it. She sees the value of it. But oh my gosh, the anxiety that it caused her, which is good because do you want to be a 14-year-old wondering how much do you charge per hour to doing someone? Or do you want to wait till you're a 40-year-old, you're the best in your industry, and you still have hesitations about asking for what you're worth? Start at 14 now that at least I have made the conversion to having a better relationship with money, I see myself having the responsibility to pay it forward and help raise the next generations
1: to have a more positive and productive relationship with money. Oh, we agree, Esther, and what a gift of a conversation. I wish someone when I was 14 had that same conversation with me and your storytelling emphasis is just a great reminder that the more we talk, the more we tell our stories, share our mistakes, the more others will learn from that. Thank you, Esther, for bringing your study, yourself, your story, telling capabilities, all that to Money Tales.
3: It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening. And leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to Asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.